Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 36, we're discussing Excalibur 35, Heartbreaker. It's a Rachel-centric story, so naturally there's lots of trauma in play, but also some hope, we hope. Excalibur number 35 was originally published in March 1991, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, David Ross on pencils, Al Milgram on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. This Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here through victory in arms find the grace to draw the sword and be king. It's a bit of a heavy issue this week, but one that should give us lots of things to talk about with a fabulous guest who knows a heck of a lot about comics and graphic medicine and representations of trauma and all of these things. We're going to talk about all of that today, but first, let's introduce your regular fear lords. I am Dr. Anna Bapard. I talk about sex and gender in comics and pop culture in academia and around the internet and in my anthology, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. I co-host another podcast with Andrew of this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I am, as always, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Manager, which is why I've got a tiny rant planned today for the first comic book appearance of Priest Nightcrawler, but we will get to that. First, let's get through these introductions. Mav, if you'd like to remind the listeners of yourself and your accolades. <laughs> Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I am an academic who studies comics and pop culture and cultural studies and pro wrestling and uh, movies and TV shows and lots of stuff. I'm the I'm the host of another show called Vox Popcast, which looks at cultural representation in various mediums. And I have nothing snappy to say in my intro. There's no pop culture re- references for me to make fun of because there really oh, awesome. aren't any in this issue. And I was just like, I, and like I'm reading it going, oh, I usually make some sort of kind of joke that's relevant to whatever pop culture thing Claremont's riffing on. And Labdell doesn't do that, at least not yet. So uh, and this is just a straight <laughs> intro. And I'm like, hi. <laughs> just ruined my entire gimmick for the show. But okay. <laughs> Be that way, Scott. You've set yourself <laughs> such a standard, Mav, so don't feel bad. Thanks. <laughs> sorry. Andrew, can you, can you top any of that? No. Um, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. <laughs> I'm an instructor at St. Jerome's University and the project lead for the Lobdell Run, an exciting oh brand new social media enterprise designed specifically to keep me relevant to this podcast. Uh, actually, my Excellent. modest appreciation for the character Starfire prevents me from doing that. 
So I'm actually the project lead for the Claremont run, a project based on Chris Claremont's writing, which as it happens, only very briefly features Corey, but to its credit, doesn't turn an interesting sex positive character into something else. I'm not even wow. really sure what Liddell was going for, which sounds like me rambling, but it's all coming full circle because I'm not sure what Liddell was going for might be a theme of my contribution to our discussion of Excalibur number 35. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I was. I, I just want to applaud your way of managing to to like just ring an an indictment of Liddell's writing of Starfire into that. That was. Masterful. I have to I... represent my guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew Demand, Lobdell Scholar. The podcast is very excited to welcome this week's super special guest, a colleague and friend I've known for many years now, in Dr. Jocelyn Sackle-Fraze. Welcome, Jocelyn. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Dr. Jocelyn Sackle-Fraze teaches in the Departments of English and Foundations at Wilfrid Laurier University. They research and publish on comics, feminism, and queer theory and girlhood studies, and they are currently working on a manuscript on the medicalized gaze in autographics, which I'm very excited about. Now, Jocelyn, I'm certainly familiar with your work on comics and graphic medicine. You've published in many exciting places, but I really don't know much about your history with comics in general, or your history, such as it is, if you have one, with superhero comics in particular. So let's talk about those things. Have you been a lifelong comics reader? Okay, so this is a really fun question. So I grew up in a tiny town, a town that like sometimes had a bookstore and sometimes didn't and had some libraries, had one library, but it was kind of crappy. And so I've been reading comics kind of off and off, off and on since I was young, in part because like you can get Archie comics like in the grocery store, uh, which is really kind of like how I was introduced to comics. I have a really kind of, I know some things about superhero comics but kind of I've just uh what I've absorbed by being around comic scholars who who work on them it's not really my forte but that is also mostly due to having grown up in a place where there just wasn't really it's like Archie comics were really nice and easy to get a hold of and superhero comics were like I don't even know where you would go in in that place so yeah that's oh yeah when I would get them the only time I would get them was like at the gas station and you just never knew what you were gonna get sometimes there'd be a spider-man there and who knows which version of Spider-Man you'd be getting because they certainly wouldn't get consecutive issues. Yeah, this is something that I, I was thinking about in preparation for this, where like with Archie comics, they're sort of serialized, but like you can also pick up like any issue and yeah. kind of there's little stories and vignettes and it's really easy to follow along. And so that's really interesting because I my impression has always been that with superhero comics, like you really have to read a run from start to end, which maybe that's not true. Or maybe you just adapt if your experience is like finding whatever Spider-Man you can find at the gas station. I think we've talked about this before on the pod with certain people and we've all had different experiences. Like some of us were given sort of full runs and collections to read through and others of us <laughs> like sort of had a very peaceful meal knowledge John Dorowski was on recently talking about how he got into Excalibur through the trading cards before he'd ever read one of the comics so we've all had these very strange entry points but let's get back to your history so when did you actually start reading comics that weren't Archie comics when did you kind of discover some of the stuff that your work is based on yeah so we had I think Mouse was my first and I think that's common for lots of people because yeah. like like school, school libraries will have Mouse and they won't have yeah other comics 
Um, and then I moved away to university and I started reading actually like very much the kind of comics that I work on now, which are kind of broadly, we've grouped them under like graphic novel, like standalone, long form narrative comics, some of which were autobio and some were fictional. And a lot of the stuff, one of the things that I'm really excited about is um, a lot of the stuff that I work on is really kind of melancholic and slow and sad. And this is like very, not that there's not sad parts, but there's like actually action in this comic which is like not surprising because it's a superhero comic but it's very different for me and there's also color which I found really fun it's oh. just really fun to read something in color <laughs> I'll tell my very brief Archie story, which is that two of my best girlfriends, I met them through Archie Comics, which is that I'd had a big blow up with my best friend in grade four. And the way that I made the girlfriends who are still my girlfriends now in grade four was that they used to act out Archie Comics and make fun of them. And I knew Archie Comics and I got into doing that with them. We thought they were really funny because the characters are really cruel to each other. And mm -hmm. that was kind of what really drew us to them because it's that disjointed thing of they're these 50s teens and they're just trying to kill each other all the time time mm -hmm. <laughs> that really kind of real appeal when we were in grade four I, I know we're all over the place now but just a book recommendation for um for our show notes is 12 cent archie which is brilliant deconstruction yes. of the uh, surprisingly complex world of archie by noted comic scholar bart Beatty. All right, let's do our issue summary because we're getting so off track already. Yes, sorry. So, <laughs> no, I don't mind. I'm like happy to talk about Archie anytime. <laughs> I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. You're our hope in the face of despair. But as usual, let's review the facts of the case with a plot summary. Excalibur number 35 opens in London, where we learn of the disappearance of a young girl named Amy. We also learn that Kurt was planning a surprise party to welcome Kitty back to Excalibur, and I am so sad we didn't get to see that happen on panel. Anyway, a man with a history of mental illness, Gunter Giles, has confessed to Amy's kidnapping, but seems unwilling or unable to divulge where she is. While the other members of Excalibur search the sky in the building where Amy was last seen, Rachel joins Inspector Di Thomas and his men who are interrogating Giles. Rachel is initially reluctant to enter Giles's mind without permission, but Thomas forces her hand, reminding her of the urgency of finding Amy amid the cold and rainy night. Inside Giles's mind, Rachel finds a bunch of weird stuff. She sees a glimpse of Amy's location near an abandoned building on the moor, but there's another presence there who detonates a psychic bomb that expels Rachel from Giles's mind and leaves Giles temporarily, we hope, stupefied. Di Thomas says he knows the location of six abandoned buildings on the moor. Excalibur splits up to investigate. Di Thomas and Rachel get the right building. Rachel flies ahead toward the building and gets hit with a blinding flash of light. As her eyes adjust, she sees Ahab, her captor in the future, standing before her. As Di watches, helpless, Rachel relives the memory of being a hound, specifically the time she caught father, Kurt Wagner, and watched Ahab kill him. As Rachel sobs on the ground, Di sees a ghostly skull emerge next to her body. It is despair, a demon who feeds off the fear and hopelessness of people. Despair taunts and tortures Rachel, but she fights back violently. While that's going on, Di finds Amy in a nearby well and heads down the well to save her. But unfortunately, debris from the fight between Rachel and Despair knocks Di unconscious. Amy uses a piece of wood to help him stay afloat beside her as the well continues to fill with water. Soon, Rachel turns the tide in her battle with Despair, using the power of Amy's hope to humble and defeat the demon. Despair shrinks until he's small enough for Rachel to decisively crush him in her hand. Finally, she helps Di and Amy out of the well, and everything's okay, mostly. For now. So we are officially out of the Claremont era, as Andrew alluded to, well, stated directly, and into the Lobdell era. Like it or not, we'll be here for the next little while. So we do have plans to talk about some of the real life Lobdell stuff. Um, we will get to it, I promise. We have a couple of guests coming up who will be great at discussing that. But for today's episode, we are going to organize our thoughts around this issue in particular and around the expertise of our guest. So let's turn to that guest now for some first impressions. So, Jocelyn, what were your first impressions? 
questions of this comic book? You've already gotten into them a little bit, but what are we working with in terms of your mileage on this comic? Anything that particularly interested you, frustrated you, infuriated you, anything that you want to address right off the bat? Yeah, so I'm not really frustrated or angry about it. Good. Um, <laughs> uh, I really, so like on a really light note, I really love Rachel's outfits, like both of them. Oh, yeah. Um, I think in the right mood, I would like to rock either of those. Like it's a very, <laughs> like kind of both have a David Bowie feel <laughs> to them. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And the fishnets are just really good and all of them, like the spikes. I don't know. I really love the character design that way. On a heavier note, I think there's some really complicated things happening with trauma. I think that's probably, this is a character, Anna, you, you mentioned earlier, that has a really traumatic backstory. But I think they're really doing interesting things with Rachel and the child and kind of like playing them in this interesting way. And their stories kind of together and off one another uh, in ways that I actually found really kind of complicated. That's good. Yeah, I want to talk about the relationship between Rachel and Amy. Anything else you want to highlight before I grab some first impressions from Andrew and Matt? Other than like, it's really nice to read something in color, which I'll just say yeah. again. <laughs> it's just really, um, or like sometimes in when I read, I guess there's color, but it's often like one color. Mm. And it's very like, there's a whole aesthetic kind of point to it that you're supposed to think about and so on. And here it's just like, ooh, it's pretty. <laughs> and we have a very skilled we have a very skilled colorist on this issue in Glynis Oliver, noted mm -hmm. colorist. Um, Andrew and Mav, first impressions of this issue. <laughs> first <laughs> I don't hate this. Again, uh, yeah, first impression reading this in 2021, having the entirety of the run of Excalibur in my head already, and you know, dreading some of what's coming up, and you know, knowing I'm coming off of arguably one of the I mean, not even arguably, one of the most gifted comics creators ever. And okay, this is better than I remembered it being. I mean, I'm fine with what happened in this issue mostly. There are, um, Lobdell's idea of who Rachel is as a character is very different from Claremont's idea of who Rachel is as a character. And that has to be fair. It has to be okay. I think he is trying his best to tell his own story instead of just kind of mimicking what Chris did. And I think that's good. And I think there's some things where she seems oddly out of character to me. And that's got to be okay because this is the new guy. The new guy is on, on and, and the new guy gets to tell his story. And so for what it is in a vacuum of nothing else, this is fine. That's pretty fair, Mav. I mean, Andrew, yeah. I feel like you were coming in pretty hot on this issue. So what were your first impressions? I'll start by saying that, like, I recognize that my hatred for this approach or writer, just this issue, is probably grounded specifically in my love for Claremont and this just yeah. being an absence of that. But there's a lot happening here. I, I think Lobdell's embrace of the grimdark 90s, which we're coming into, is <laughs> kind of frustrating for Excalibur specifically. And I think yeah, there's a fundamental okay. question there. Is Excalibur a group of superheroes who operate out of Britain? Or is Excalibur a particular style or tone or themes, right? Because we've gone from girls' school from heck to like Mystic River uh, yeah. from one issue to the next. And, and that is genuinely jarring. And then there's like Lobdellisms in the writing that I don't love. Um, we'll talk about this with Rachel. I don't love the way he's constantly calling attention to other people reacting to her body. That bothered me a little bit. Uh, and then there's like some of his, his, his lines. Like I'm on record. Lobdell is, I think, a good writer about five to six years from this point in time. But he writes things like, quote, it's an explosion without sound. 
unless you count the noise of windows shattering for several city blocks. End quote. <laughs> and yeah, I would count that as sound. <laughs> so there's a lot of like frustrating things for me here. But but I, I agree with Jocelyn and Mav. Like the core storytelling is is pretty good. I'm just mad because it's not Claremont, and maybe more importantly for our podcast, I'm mad because in my mind this isn't Excalibur. Right. This character of Rachel is, and that's what I was getting at when I was like, I, I, I got to ex- accept that this is the new guy. The, the old guy's gone, and yeah, spoilers, he's not coming back. He's he's not. We don't. Well, maybe in the future, and by the future I mean 2022. But as far as <laughs> <laughs> but as far 1992 Chris isn't coming back and I and I had to let that go and Rachel is very out of character for who Rachel Summers was to me then and who Rachel Summers is to me now but if I want to be fair if this is my first ever issue of this book even things like um, you just pointed out the people the calling attention to Rachel's body that's not a mistake that's what he's chosen to do and he's trying to do something interesting by it by having her acknowledge and resist it like he's it's not where Chris would have gone but Scott's the new guy so you got to give him that chance and it's weird I find Rachel's relationship with Die extremely weird because how do you two know each other like this you know like Die seems to know stuff about future Scott Summers how is that even possible like Scott doesn't know stuff about future like there's weirdnesses to this and I get that but Scott LaBelle's doing his own thing so again not as offensive as I think I previewed on like our very first episode that there are some there are some issues with this comic that I really deplorably hate and this is not it yet (laughs) not for me (laughs) yeah I mean I think that this is an interesting issue with stuff to talk about and I think the kind of graphic medicine frame for it will be an interesting Mm -hmm. one so maybe we should actually just turn to that and sort of bring some of that to it and see what we can kind of make on it on that that level so for those listeners we, i know we do have many comic scholars listeners actually but for those of you who don't study comics so it's a really fascinating subfield of comic studies which as we already know um, our guest jocelyn has done quite a bit of work in so we've discussed trauma and disability and some other related topics on the pod before but we haven't actually talked specifically about graphic medicine so let's do that now so jocelyn would you be able to tell us a little bit about what we mean when we talk about graphic medicine What do we mean by this term and what kind of stories does that term encompass? Absolutely. So graphic medicine, I think I I would describe it as two things that are happening simultaneously. So one, there is a formal graphic medicine project. Um, You can find like it has a manifesto. It there's a whole website if you're interested in it's graphicmedicine.org. There's a conference and it's a very organized in a certain sense kind of collected group of people thinking about the intersection between comics and medicine. um, And it includes people who are sort of on the human comic scholarship side as well as people who like work in medicine so doctors and nurses and many of whom work in medicine and like also make comics in addition to writing on them um, and that's a very cool intersection both in how they're conceiving of comics as being useful for the field of medicine I think is kind of that approach a little bit more than, than the second thing that's going on which is um, useful for the field of medicine in terms of like relaying information to patients but also 
relaying information from patients to medical professionals. An article I was reading a couple weeks ago, I'm terrible with names, I apologize if the person who wrote this is listening somehow, um, but referred to like graphic pathologies, which are autobiographical comics dealing with like living through or living with an illness or a disability or caring for someone with an illness or disability are like the best teaching tools for people on the medical side about what it is to live with those things. So it's kind of the the formal project, but it's also this bigger overarching thing. It's kind of more broadly a movement of sorts. So the way that I think about graphic medicine more broadly, um, the way that I participate in graphic medicine is thinking about, um, I really, really like what the scholar Susan Sontag says in her book AIDS and its visual metaphors is she talks about like having how everyone has two passports, one to the kingdom of, or the citizenship, excuse me, of like the well and one to the citizenship of like the unwell. And it's always, always when we're in the citizenship of the well, that's always temporary. And so this can happen in like many different kinds of ways. We can become less able-bodied or disabled with aging. That's a pretty natural kind of progression in life. We can simply become sick in either a chronic way or like in a much less chronic way. And I would also include in that things that um, don't necessarily intersect formally with systems of medicine, things like being traumatized and experiencing trauma, right? That's a way of being unwell that isn't necessarily, wouldn't inherently fit into um, the formal project if the conversation is about trauma and not like treatments of trauma or a, a kind of intersection of like, here's my trauma and I'm again, like seeking treatment, interacting with the medical system, but I do think it would fit into like the larger project. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, when we talk about graphic medicine, do you consider it to be talking about sort of physical health and wellness in addition to mental health and wellness? I do, absolutely. And that's something that I think the, the official project also, like, they have a, a, a reading list that they're kind of constantly updating. So if people are interested in, like, what are these texts, you can go in and find a really robust list, again, on that website. But, like, they include Ellen Forney's Marbles, which is all about um, her, her bipolar disorder and her kind of journey to finding a system of medicines and practices that help her manage it. So it is sort of formally accepted in, in the, the project, but I would say yes, absolutely. So what do you find particularly valuable about the comics form for kind of representing some of these topics? Like, does it have something to do with the accessibility of the medium? Does it have something to do with the ways that comics are like a multimodal medium? Would that have something to do with it? The way that they communicate sort of in hybrid ways or multimodal ways that can represent experience on a lot of different levels and through a lot of different intersections? Yeah, absolutely. So mm, I'm so bad with names. I believe his name is Ian Williams. He's, yes, I believe. I'm like, no, is that Raymond Williams? No, that's the cultural studies guy. Uh, Ian Williams <laughs> is one of the, the doctors who is like the main organizer in, in the process. And so he makes comics and talks about how the multimodal nature of comics and also the visual representation of an avatar that's like a person, but not exactly a person. It's like not photorealist. So it's a little bit easier to identify across lines of things like gender and race and class. It really, really is helpful in just like fostering empathy between the reader and the text and therefore by extension the reader and if you're reading autobiographical stuff, the author. For me, part of what is useful is, um, so I, I came to graphic medicine kind of thinking about the male gaze in cinema actually first. And autobiographical comics by women who are dealing with their own trauma are doing this really interesting thing 
interesting, right? Because the comics page lets you, as a creator, as someone who's drawing their own story, have full control over the gaze, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a full control over like how the reader sees and also how you are seen and in ways that like a lot of a lot of women making autobiographical comics dealing with trauma, they're really like playing with that as well. And I think there's a similar thing that happens in in graphic medicine explicitly, although I think there's like huge overlap between graphic medicine and some of these like feminist like trauma comics, which is so there's this thing called the medicalized gaze, which is I think Michelle Foucault comes up with this term as a way of describing how systems of medicine kind of fail to see people and rather see sort of like disease as a problem to be solved and that itself can be traumatizing and in representing your own relationship to medical systems like formally but also like the late capitalist neoliberal thing where we're all under the pressure of like certain kinds of systems all the time and we might be living that way while also managing trauma or chronic illness or sort of the various ways we can be unwell right like that's a there's a there's a gaze there too and so in making comics about those things you have again that full control over the gaze that can be really um can be really powerful and I think some of the things that I want to talk about in this comic is how we are asked to look at Rachel um Mm -hmm. because I think it's, it's absolutely kind of what's fruitful and powerful about about graphic medicine at least for me yeah and I mean one of the difficulties with transposing some of those theories onto superhero comics is that some of those theories relate to sort of the creator having full control right as you're saying right but then when we're talking about a superhero comic we have to talk about this collaborative effort made within a serialized like uh, capitalistic structure and then that affects how we're going to interpret the depiction of a female superhero in this space right it affects you know how we're going to interpret whose gaze is operative here right and the images are always still going to be really complicated but sort of the subjectiveness with which you can represent things in comics is just it becomes really complicated when you're talking about this context and there's certain ways that we can read Rachel's body as powerful and there's certain ways that we can read Rachel's body as very sort of threatened by the gaze in this comic and that's a really interesting sort of dynamic to unpack I think in conversation with so many of those things that you're bringing up Jocelyn. Absolutely and I think even in a collaborative context like the text still produces like internal to itself like an ethics of seeing or an ethics of looking right what do we get to see how do we get to see it um and that's like very much like the image exists before us and we encounter it again through this thing that through this this ethics that's like produced collaboratively or not i think it's still there well yeah i mean there's always the collaboration in comics too in the sense that the reader is required to collaborate in constructing meaning out of fragments right so i mean we can talk about that as a form of collaboration too so if we're thinking about sort of disempowering such empowering images of women in comics we always have to think about how is the reader producing empowerment and disempowerment as well right and thinking about the complications there because one of the things we've talked about often on this show is like are objectifying images exclusively empowering or disempowering and we keep coming back to the fact they're neither right they can do multiple things depending on who's looking and we just went through the girls school from hex storyline talking about all the different gazes in operation there and of course we've talked about nightcrawler and his complicated objectifications many times on the pod and i'm sure we will do so again but yeah it's it's so I love that idea of collaboration and sort of the collaborative gaze and I don't know I want to talk about the ethics that we're bringing to this comic as well so well can I ask you another question about this comic specifically in relation to graphic medicine would you consider this comic an example of graphic medicine I would include it yes I'm not sure that anyone who does graphic medicine kind of scholarship would the reasons that I would include it are that it's just like 
however, like in some in some cases, there's a really like the stuff it does with trauma, I think is has a really fine point on it. And so it's dealing mm-hmm. right with what it is to be unwell in a way. But then it also in this really blunt way is just like because of his mental health issues, we can never find yeah. this person as if like trauma is not mental health. So it's yeah, it's, I think abs- it's asking the same kinds of questions that 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 field that umbrella is, is asking. Yeah, I mean, certainly whether this comic is doing a good job of those things is a question that we'll be asking throughout the episode today. But in terms of it being a comic that's sort of engaging with some of those topics, I sort of thought that's why that would be an interesting frame to bring to this issue. Well, let me ask you one other question related yeah, to this absolutely. issue, and then I'll sort of open the open the convo up a little bit more to Andrew and Mav. Reading this comic, and again, you're coming in fresh, you don't really know these characters or this world, it's fine. That's not like a, a criticism. I actually love bringing in sort of fresh voices to talk about these things, which is part of what we enjoy doing on this podcast. So reading this comic, what did you sort of interpret as Rachel's conflicts? Like if she's afflicted with something, what was she afflicted with sort of in your reading of this comic? Yeah, so I thought this comic was doing something really interesting in that it is thinking about, or my interpretation of it, is that it's thinking about the way that certain kinds of trauma are just like expected for women and for girls that we just kind of like inherently expect gendered violence like I think the violence against the young girl is absolutely a gendered thing that for some reason it's always the female child and it's always the white blue hair blonde eyed female child that like gets to represent the nation and that's heavily gendered right in addition to being raced and so on and then also the things that Rachel goes through she talks about right that scene where um the evil skeleton man what is his name (laughs) despair despair (laughs) and he's like trying to just he's feeding off of her um kind of ptsd and she's she's talking about like how she's been used by all of these people and i just I think some some of what I'm doing in my own work that felt really kind of resonant with that moment is this idea that um, we see it in the world and we see it in popular culture that oh it's just part of puberty right part of coming of age for women and girls is, is sexual violence that's how we get strong that's how we get resilient that's how or I should say that's how I'm a non-binary person but I'm like assigned female of birth so like the we there is a little bit sticky um, and that that felt like those two stories in the way that they were gendered resonated together really in in interesting ways and I yeah yeah I want to talk about we'll get to it but I definitely want to talk about the conclusion of the comic and sort of our mileage on making the concept of despair into a physical being that you can punch (laughs) and whether that's productive or not but um, let me bring you back into the conversation sort of Andrew and Mav do you find graphic medicine sort of a useful frame for this comic book or like a useful frame for understanding Rachel's story in general because I know both of you have had contact with this field of study as well for viewing the idea of Rachel, I think that the entire body of comics about Rachel are about a woman dealing with trauma. That's been her entire life. So I think to look at that character through a graphic medicine framework, I think is absolutely going to just be thing that one would want to at least consider. For this comic in particular, I don't know. I don't know that it's good enough or bad enough. I'm, I'm not enough of a scholar in the field. I'm not a scholar in that field at all. I, but Jocelyn just said that you could see how people might reject it. And I absolutely can see how people might reject it as eh, it's not really doing anything interesting. I don't know that like graphic medicine needs to work for you for it to, for it to count. So it's, it, it's complicated. Oh, sure, the term didn't really exist yet. But I think that Lundell is trying to do a thing. <laughs> so if trying to deal with the concept of trauma is enough 
qualify as being part of graphic medicine, <laughs> then I then sure. But I, I don't know that I'm willing to. I would never think to say that outside of the context of having this conversation about, like, if somebody said, yeah. "Do you think of your best bet, the best representations of graphic medicine in Marvel oh, comics yeah. in the '90s?" This is not the one that's going to come out. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, no, and that's kind I, of where, where I'm weird, you know. So I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, I think where I'm sort of coming at it from is just that that can be a frame for talking about it, right? Do I think yeah, yeah. Scott Lobdell was like inventing the field of graphic medicine in like 1991? <laughs> no, I do not. I definitely, <laughs> right. definitely do not. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Yeah, but I mean, if it's like about what we're going to bring to something as much as it's about what the thing is doing, and that's very much how I tend to sure. approach superhero comics, which mm -hmm. is, you know, like, what are the options made available to me? What are sort of the layers and contradictions made available to me? And how can I unpack that in a way that's useful for me, right? And that's something that we've talked about on the podcast before sort of different ways of reading superhero comics and different ways that we need to make the narratives work for us so to me it's like well what can we get from bringing a graphic medicine frame to this in terms of sort right. of thinking about visualizations of, of rachel's trauma and despair is the villain so mm -hmm. that i don't particularly like how despair is written in this comic you know failed ab sketch comic spare but um but um but he's the villain so conceptually again labdell's doing a thing how about you andrew did you find this as do you find that sort of a compelling frame to sort of think about this comic and like sort of which dynamics within the comic would you think are particularly useful on that level yeah i, I think it's 100 percent useful um all credit to jocelyn even though they teach at my school's rival school by the way um, <laughs> UW and laurier have a fun rivalry they beat us at sports ball all the time anyway um my argument would be just that Graphic medicine can do both the good and the bad, right? It can point out the ways that the story is working and it can point out the ways the story is falling short. For me, one of the big issues is sort of diminishing returns on Rachel's trauma. Um, she keeps being traumatized again and again and again. She keeps confronting her trauma again, again, and again, but she never gets actual help. And I think that's a really important missing piece if we're going to go there and really explore trauma that, that that arc needs to have that direction or resolution and i know superhero comics don't usually do that but we're like a year away from examinations in x factor with doc samson um so i i feel like that needs to happen. brilliant story by the way yeah amazing <laughs> well let's like sort of because we brought this up a little bit already about sort of the unique visualizations of you know female bodies in particular in both autographics more broadly but graphic medicine in particular so let's talk about the visualization of rachel's trauma so i definitely want to talk about embodying despair in a character that rachel can crush in her hand but let's talk about the visualizations of rachel's trauma sort of in general and obviously everything about rachel her body her costume her physical representation when she's not not in costume all of these things are in conversation with the traumas that she's experienced and that's something that we've talked about on the show before so for jocelyn's benefit we get sort of a, a flashback to it in this comic but the red costume with the spikes that she wears is a version of the costume that she wore when she was this mutant hound responsible for hunting down her friends so there's various things that you can read into her decision to wear that costume you know sort of taking ownership of this costume that was used to humiliate and control her in the past and her taking control of it. We've had all of these references throughout the comic book of she has to get into this costume telekinetically like there's no zipper on this costume when she's in it it is a second skin right? So there's a lot of resonance to that costume. So I wanted to come back to you Jocelyn for your thoughts about how Rachel is visualized in this comic obviously she is a hypersexualized character and there's lots of different things we can do with that. So I was curious about your mileage on that visualization 
in conversation with gender and sexuality and all these things that you're already kind of touching on, how did you feel about it? Like, was this sort of an effective visualization of this character? Did some of the visualizations of her take you out of the story? What was sort of your mileage on the sexualization or the visual presentation of Rachel in general? Yeah, so there's one panel that really struck me and I I didn't know kind of what to make of it. So it's kind of the main, the big panel on 19 where there's like, it's a quite sexualized, disempowered image where she's crying and on her knees and that kind of haunted me in the sense of like I, I couldn't stop thinking about it until I came back and kind of reread the piece. And I, I think there's a, a reparative reading, a way to actually read that panel, that image image in a way that's less objectifying and the the way that I get there is thinking about or is am I jumping too much ahead should I no no oh, that's fine no. <laughs> uh, okay so I'm on right 18, the page before almost the panel before she's like depicted I think it's 18 like on her knees and all huddled up and again it's like this really <laughs> disempowered um kind of position but it also echoes that first splash page with amy the little girl Mm -hmm. in a way that i think is asking us the way that i interpreted that was that we're being asked to think about those traumas kind of like on a spectrum from one another like as being linked and related and i thought about it as so like for me the little girl is kind of like the the despair right he's trying to to cause the little girl harm and to cause Rachel harm so he can feed off of, and to cause the little girl harm so he can feed off of like the collective mourning of the people of London, which is like a really kind of apt way of describing the way, again, like the blonde haired, blue eyed little girl stands in for like national, like for the nation, right? And it kind of feels like when she's rescued, it kind of feels like she's rescued by that same collective grief or that same collective fear. And so for me, what, what, the way that I found a way to read that panel without it only being this kind of like sexualized objectified image is on the one hand right like the the what's his face making those comments as we talked about earlier like drawing attention to her body I think prompts us to read that image a little more critically to not only look at her body as a body but a body that is being looked at and looked at in a violent way and also like treated in a violent way but I also want if we're like invited like the same kind of collective grief if we're invited to like extend that to her and her trauma as well that it's not just the little girl but maybe it's like sexual violence at all yeah that image was definitely the one that stood out to me the most in the comic as well Mm -hmm. and i'm similarly struggling with how to read it because on the one hand we have to have her trauma depicted violently in order for us to understand the violence of the trauma and even including the sexual component of the way that she's humiliated and the way that she's traumatized it's important and i don't want to overlook that and it's a complicated image because although it is sexual based on the pose and everything it's not a beautiful image it's not sort of the images that we often see of female superheroes and when we talked about bondage a few episodes ago you know where we see them sort of bound up and gagged and we see them orgasming right like this is a very painful image and i think it's intended to be a painful image and yet at the same time her position where he's situated behind her it definitely evokes rape and i think that's where i'm coming from in terms of my discomfort because it is a very visceral image and yeah i don't know it's a complicated image though 
which I think makes it interesting. But I don't know, Andrew or Matt, did you have thoughts about that panel? I knew, Jocelyn, I knew exactly which page and panel you were going to put when, when you started speaking about it. It's like, <laughs> there's a lot here. And I agree with Anna in that I don't think it's doing the same sort of quasi-orgasmic, you know, is she enjoying this or is it pain that we think of when we're talking about typical, heteronormative, male-based focused artwork. However, it is very evocative of a certain style of communication artwork from that is for any listeners who is part of the BDSM community, I am not saying all BDSM artwork is like this, but I am aware, as are you, that this is a style that can exist in that realm as well. So I don't think you can just hand wave away and say, well, you know, they're not trying to be sexual. It's a, it's a sexualized pose. That's what it's about, particularly. Yeah, I'm with Mav. I think anytime you're sexualizing violence uh, against really anyone, it's problematic when it's non-consensual violence, right? Uh, and to have her illustrated with um, bodily attributes that are clearly maybe catering to a male gaze, let's say, in a scene where she is being hurt, in a scene where she is crying, that's, to me, you know, a pretty simple line to draw, even though I know we try to avoid simple lines to draw on this panel. Really? I mean, like, I wonder about sort of different listeners having different mileage on the image, because I do think it's a very disturbing image. And I've thought a lot about my reaction mm -hmm. to it. And in that sense, it's interesting that it made me think about my reaction to it and the different levels that this image can hit. But yeah, I always come back to that question of if we're going to like visualize sexual violence as trauma, how do we do that in a way that's not objectifying? And obviously, <laughs> comics like autographics by female creators have been doing a much better job yeah. of this than the superhero comics have been doing so in a sense it's like a moot point because it's like we'll just look at what those things have been doing um but maybe a way to get at this too would be to talk about well let's talk about that like embodiment of despair and what that kind of does for us because we can talk about sort of rachel's resistance to these things as well and whether that helps at all so superhero comics often get criticized for reducing complex social problems to punchable problems right and that's something that we've talked about on the podcast before when we talked about some of the ethics of the Nazi issues and that kind of thing and it's come up in other episodes as well but yeah I was curious Jocelyn about your mileage on that here because there can be a power in that right like reducing a problem to a punchable problem and doing that within a genre in which characters have superpowers that allow them to do that and to be able to fight back in that way and it's interesting the way we think about the nature of Rachel's powers so she has telepathic powers and telekinetic powers she can manipulate matter right including her own clothes we see her do that in this issue and just including the space around her. She is a tremendously, tremendously powerful character. She is a character that can reshape reality, right? And yet she's a character that's been shown to have very little control over her own vulnerability a lot of the time, especially in scenes like this. So there's a lot going on with that character on that level. And I was curious about, again, just that embodiment of despair here, this like sort of embodiment of trauma in a character that she's able to fight back against, but that also has the power to humiliate her, right? Because it kind of does both things to make despair a physical being. So what was your kind of take on that, Jocelyn? Do you find that kind of an interesting way to approach what Rachel's going through here? Or does it just simplify the problem in a way that's too problematic to be useful? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, man, I need to think about that, like reducing it to... So taking this issue as a standalone issue, and I think it was Andrew who said, like, 
who mentioned earlier that she keeps coming back to her trauma and not ever getting help, which is like kind of working a little bit against what I'm going to say, but I'm going to treat this as a standalone issue um, because that is what I know. Um, Having her spend a little bit of time in her trauma, I think has the potential to resonate with certain readers. I think the way... How do I say this? I think the way that she, so I'm still going to talk about how she is, how she is sexualized because I find it really interesting yeah. and I want to respond to those things. I think that the way that she's depicted and talked about by the guy who draws attention to her body and so on is just so, like, I think it's really trying to ask readers to take a critical view on the sexualization like I find it really hard in some of those images to see or find like an invitation to eroticize her even for like BDSM and kink stuff like in the context of the story I think it's like pretty clear that this is like a sexualization that is not for the reader's pleasure but but I I also think you could push back on that Uh, absolutely there's something that happened okay I want to show this is kind of what you're what you're asking but I'm going to refuse to answer the question because I'm like I don't know um one of the things that struck me about her trauma and the way it's treated is she has that like kind of resurgence of power she gets a second wind after experiencing like what if you wanted to like really medicalize what she's going through would be like trauma-induced resilience which I'm not sure that in the 90s we had a sense of like that resilience as being itself actually a really bad sign I think it was seen as like true resilience or like a positive that comes out of trauma but I think there is like that just seeing that made me feel like it was that's one of of the ways even though I think now we know a little more we look at that a little awry but that's one of the ways that she's kind of empowered if she can refuse further traumatization based on her her resilience yeah and I mean we can think about the ways that she's interacting with Amy there again, right? You know, it's Amy's hope, you know, the hope of this girl child that Rachel is symbolically linked to that inspires Rachel's hope, I think we're meant to believe, right? Unless I'm completely misreading the comic. So it's a combination of kind of Rachel's resilience, her ability to hold out, and sort of that bond that she's established thematically and psychically with Amy. Yeah, absolutely. I think so, yeah. So that matters as well. I mean, I, I want to hear your thoughts about it, Andrew and Mav, as well. But I, I just, for me, it almost comes down to a question of whether you like the way that superhero comics approach problems or not. Because, like it or not, that is how they approach problems, by making them punchable problems, by making conflicts, physical conflicts that you can fight out. And I think if you're somebody that enjoys superhero comics, you enjoy the power of that. And I'm someone who enjoys superhero comics, so as much as I recognize how simplistic it is, I do like seeing Rachel fight back, reduce despair to a tiny transparent thing and then grab him in her hand and crush him and what I really love about it too like I mean we keep talking about Rachel revisiting her trauma and the diminishing returns on that and yet part of me does like the recognition that her trauma isn't get overable that it isn't something she can just put in a box and forget about it is always with her and the fact that it does keep coming back speaks to that a little bit and one of the things I did find effective about sort of the the conclusion here because you know again this speaks to whether this is simplifying or not you know despair tells her i'll be back and she says i know and i'll be waiting for you she knows that the trauma she knows that the despair is always going to be coming back and perhaps again it's simplistic and it's problematic and for all the reasons jocelyn was saying it is very problematic in terms of an actual medical sense but that she's learning ways to kind of cope with these challenges to her integrity both her mental integrity and her physical integrity and that's my absolutely most hopeful most reparative Mm -hmm. reading of like what keeps happening with Rachel (laughs) 
I like what you're doing, and I, I think I'm going to sort of reiterate what Jocelyn was saying, sort of take it, you know, a, a step farther. I think to not answer the question, like Jocelyn said, I think Anna, you're asking the question sort of to the unfair group of people because the three of us are superhero scholars. Right. So yeah, of course I like punchable problems. That's the beauty of, of it. It's like so yes, there is something I, I where I said I think LaBelle's doing a thing. I like that not only does Rachel get to name her trauma, she says this. She tells you that she's going, you know, I'm reducing you to a tiny thing that I'm going to crush in my hands. I'm going to win this version. I know you're going to come back and I'll be ready. This is the most didactic and simplistic version of here's what repeat trauma looks like. Here's what, you know, I struggle with every day. So what you just said, Anna, you know, do we like this? Yes. However, I also think it's been done better even by LaBelle. I, I think it's been done better in comics. And again, I don't hate this. I actually, I really <laughs> do like that she says that at the end. Like, I think that's a really interesting way of saying it, but it, it is jarring. Yeah, for sure. I mean, can I put it back to you, Andrew? I mean, obviously we're in the Lobdell era now and we're not in the Claremont era, but you've dealt with sort of the ways that Claremont pioneered certain ways of using psychic and telepathic powers in comics and symbolic ways. So I thought maybe you'd have some interesting insights on this, on sort of the embodiment of problems. Like, I mean, what was your mileage then on sort of Rachel's quote unquote solution in this issue? Like, did it jive with any sort of work that you've done on sort of representation of some of those power sets and sort of the symbolic things that we can do with them? Um, I, I did do some work on um, Rogue and Carol Danvers and the importance in trauma victims of being seen. And I think to me, that's actually one of the major problems here. I completely agree with the entire panel, especially Jocelyn, that in isolation, this is a cool story about resilience in the face of depression. But coming back to that diminished returns thing that I was talking about, Rachel exists in a 616 that has therapy, that has psychopharmacology. So that absence being continually reiterated eventually to me becomes a statement that having depression, having despair and getting help for them are antithetical to being a superhero. And, and, and to me, that's where the represented, the representational function falls a little flat. And again, I think that's a, th a thing that emerges as a pattern, not in this issue. I like this issue um, for all the reasons that you guys have described. Um, again, it's just for me in the context of this character who clearly needs help and isn't getting it. I think there's a risk in suggesting that getting help the way that someone like this needs help is unsuper heroic. Uh, and I don't know, that, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it, it risks linking Rachel, even in a, in a small way, but there's a risk of linking Rachel with the kidnapper also, who just has like kind of undisposed mm. mental health stuff that like he's just not getting taken care of. And that's why we can't find this little girl. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah, that's interesting. Can we talk a little bit about, what is his name? Is it Giles? Giles, yeah. Yeah. That, he just disappears from the story. And I, you know, I, I do sort of wish more was dealt with him. Because I'm I'm not clear. Do we think that he has ongoing mental health problems, or is that just a convenience just a spare, for? Yeah, because yeah, it's unclear. It's, and then, yeah, and then like literally, Rachel fries his brain on accident. She's like, yeah, he'll be better in a couple of weeks. There's a lot going on here. I also like. I wonder if the original story, because Amy, the little girl, looks to be about seven, and Giles looks to be about seventeen. And I don't know if like it's written in such a weird way where it's like he's going out on a date, and then he kidnapped her. But I, did he just happen to? 
pass a seven-year-old and Ian Despair took over? Or was the story supposed to have made Amy 17 and then they just decided not to draw her that way? I'm not clear what was going on there, but it feels rushed and weird, especially since we never come back. And then, you know, even with, with all that, like, does Rachel, Rachel says, I'm not going to go into his head. And then immediately does. Like, I think that there's supposed to be more to this story. <laughs> and the ramifications of everything that happened is weird now to say that. Yeah, it's not great, the thing with Giles. I That's definitely the part of the comic that I did not enjoy. So not just me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it felt to me like they were trying to do something i'm thinking of the what, what year is it the comic uh like yeah. 1991 91 so like stranger danger is a huge thing i think in 91 oh, yeah. mm-hmm. so it feels like it's trying to say something about stranger danger but it doesn't know what it's saying and it's like kind of incoherent about it yeah for sure and i mean uh this is like not going to be in the thread of our conversation but in terms of the linkages that are being drawn here it's interesting as you were saying jocelyn sort of the linkage between rachel and the kidnapper in terms of the unethicalness of some of her actions you know entering someone else's mind effectively sort of is a form of kidnapping symbolically depending on how we read telepathy in this comic and the lack of consent with the telepathy is important like Rachel initially doesn't want to do it because of that lack of consent and then she does it anyway and there is a potentially catastrophic result of that but we don't really know because we don't follow up and we're never going to see Giles again I don't know I mean there's other things that we could talk about about the linkage between Rachel and the girl though in terms of innocence and you know how innocence is thematized or not in Rachel's story because again if I was doing this kind of reparative reading of it where I'm going to do you know probably something that I don't think the comic was sophisticated reaching to but that I would like to bring to this comic is sort of the idea of emphasizing that Rachel does have an inherent innocence despite everything that she's gone through and that appeals to me in the sense that it resists certain narratives of sexualized abuse that you know it destroys your innocence and sort of the person that you were is gone and sort of asserting that that's not necessarily true through the linkage with Amy and through the ways that she's empowered by that innocence but even as I'm saying it that could be like a double-edged sword thing where it does the opposite thing which is that it sort of suggests Rachel needs to revert to innocence to be powerful so i'm not really sure what to do with that and maybe i just shouldn't have started talking on that particular (laughs) (laughs) i'm doing too much like reparative work with this comic and like giving it way too much credit for too many things yeah i think i don't know if this is this sorry i'm just like scrolling through the comic as we're talking and this occurred to me as you were describing innocence that on page 10 when like the psychic bomb appears it's like this real perversion of innocence on a number of levels including like a potentially sexualized one in that the little girl has the bomb under her skirt that she lifts up like it, like that does not have to be or the you know what i mean like yeah you had choices about that so it, yeah I, I don't know what to say about it but yeah, I mean, because, like, the little girl's innocence was perverted inside of Despair's version of reality, right? And then we see the psychic bomb detonated with, like, yeah. It's hard to unravel some of the sexual stuff in this comic because so much of it is just bound up in genre tropes of the superhero genre. So it's like, was it commenting on these things or was it just doing them? Because that's how superhero comics does things. <sighs> I don't know. There's so much more stuff that we could talk about. But I, <laughs> we're, we're kind of running at low on time. So, like, maybe we should move to kind of final thoughts 
thoughts and that can be a way for everybody to kind of get at what they want to get at i mean you guys all know that i want to talk about priest nightcrawler just like briefly yeah just briefly, briefly. you want to leave yours for last <laughs> well no i'll give jocelyn the last word on it but um mm-hmm. but if you've got if you've got a brief final thought mav i'll let you take the first one uh my first one was i find the the relationship between rachel and guy thomas fascinating in this issue because i don't know where it came from i think a lot's going on i think labdell wants guy thomas to be his new pet character here because guy gets it I get more dialogue in this issue than he's had in the entire series so far. And based on, you know, like he has, he has a relationship with Rachel where he feels comfortable calling her Summers. He seems to know about her parentage, which again, the Scott Summers of this reality doesn't really know that much about her parentage. <laughs> and so, like, Guy is like talking about Rachel and he knows how her powers work. And here's what I really want to get at he's got a full battalion of. Vietnam era yeah. war war chest in the trunk of his car that he just carries around all the time, and that's something that like I could have done this entire episode on <laughs> because um it, it, and I think it does relate to the idea of trauma because something else that we're dealing with very much in America is um, America the United States never gets over Vietnam they just don't it gets the United States over Vietnam was basically entering the Iraq War and starting yeah. that era of politics. In 1991, the U.S. is very much reckoning with this. So to be uh, a character, he is very much dressed as a Vietnam vet who, you know, he's running around with a knife in his mouth. Like, that's something going on here, and that seems to relate to trauma to me as well, except that, like, we don't get to deal with it. You know, like, it's not like this is a, a three-part or a five-parter. Well, it raises questions about who Lobdell wants Di Thomas to be as a character because right. it's like, see, making him a traumatized American Vietnam War vet because that's not really the character of Di Thomas. Uh, but he seems, but he seems, I mean, Lobdell seems to think he is. And yeah. like, you know, and, and then he's, I mean, even in as much as he dives into, you know, he leaves his gun behind to dive into the well to, I, if I can just save this one girl. Like, it, it's very much a American war hero wish fulfillment story. Yeah, I wonder what the mileage of our UK listeners is going to be on that. I'm sure that they yeah. will let us know. Andrew, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to bring up? Yes, it's, we don't have to talk about it. Um, It's a Scott Lobdell cheap shot, and I'm pretty sure my subconscious made me do math, which is weird because I'm an English major. Uh, <laughs> so at one point, they say that Excalibur is a half hour away. They've split up to different points in the Moors. And mm-hmm. I was like, what? Really? So I did math. Uh, the North England Moors are 554 square miles at their longest width, 40 miles across. According to Marvel, Captain Britain can fly at a speed of 770 miles per hour, meaning the longest possible trip across the Moors would take Brian four minutes long. <laughs> and that, again, I love just that. the worst nerd tendencies to do stuff like that. And I promise I'll be nicer to Lovedale. Oh, no. I'm pretty sure we're going to be harder on him in future episodes. So (laughs) you are not going to break that promise, Andrew. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Mine obviously is about the Priest Nightcrawler thing. And I won't belabor it. It's just because this is the only time it's going to come up in this comic. So it's a chance to mention it. So this is the first on-panel 
version of Nightcrawler, who is a priest. And we don't get a lot of it here. It's in Rachel's flashback. This particular flashback kind of gets picked up on again later in X-Men Gold. And of course, Kurt briefly thought he was a priest in X-Men Comics in between 2000 and 2002. He was never a priest. He was brainwashed into believing he was. That's important. Writers keep forgetting (laughs) it. So we'll just remind everybody on the podcast, was never a priest. So the issue that I have with it is pretty basic, which is that there is a huge difference between being Catholic and being a Catholic priest. It's a huge difference between sort of having a personal faith and being a representative of a religious institution. And I think that that should be pretty self-explanatory, but like, just in case... When you're becoming the representative of an institution, you are implicitly embracing certain of the policies of that institution. It sort of limits Kurt's ability to have sort of an idiosyncratic and individualistic sort of version of his faith, which he would have to have, since many of the official policies of the Catholic Church do not align with the personal politics of Kurt Wagner, whether we're talking about gender or sexuality or various sort of ethics of inclusion more broadly. And that is not to say that there aren't priests who are within the Catholic Church who are resisting those policies themselves. We all know that there are. I actually had two great uncles who were Catholic priests. Catholicism (laughs) runs in my family, though I don't personally identify that way. But still, it's just, it's a problem. And I think... Any story is tellable, but if you're going to tell a story about how Kurt Wagner goes from being the Kurt Wagner that we have known up to this point in comics to wanting to be a representative of an organization that, you know, we don't have to like list all the things that like sort of the Catholic Church has been implicated in, but, you know, obviously residential schools have been on my mind a lot and on the mind of a lot of Canadians of late. To sign up for sort of an institution, to be a representative of an institution that's implicated in policies of that nature, I can't get my head around the version of Kurt Wagner that I know being willing to do that. He's sort of a character that's always spoken truth to power, that's always sort of resisted institutional power, like all the way back to the Uncanny X-Men days when he resisted the power of Xavier and he resisted the power of Scott as the leader of the team and asserted his individuality and asserted other ways to lead and other ways to live. And again, just the idea of him becoming an institution of, sorry, a representative of the institution of the Catholic Church, that's a problem for me. Like, am I completely at a left field on that? No, I completely agree with that, Rita. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I think what's, I think what's wrong is, well, okay, I, I was gonna say never. Um, I, I, we never got to the story of how Kurt became a priest. That's not true. We did get the story of how he, how, how he became a priest, and it was a bad story, so it got wrecked on the way. Well, no, the story of how he became a priest is that he was brainwashed by the Church of Humanity into being a priest. Right, that's right. Yeah, it was, in the it, Claremont it, comics, yeah. it was a six month later time jump, so we never actually got it. And you can't become right, a priest exactly. in six months. It's a stupid story. Anyway. That's, 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 <laughs> yes, that's a, it was a bad story. Got that's what I'm saying. So I don't, and that was 20 years after this, right? Like this is what's happening here. It is a weird thing to do as a throwaway, which is what it was here. It was like a, you know, in the ultimate future, this is what Kurt became. And then particularly one of the things that um, makes it troubling is it keeps coming back, right? Like the, if this becomes part of Nightcrawler canon, well, not from here on out, from eight years from now on out, right? Basic or no, I guess it's twelve years. Whenever X two comes out, whenever the X Men second X Men movie comes out, it becomes more and more and more of the X Men canon. From what's essentially you know a two page alternate history, you know it's weird because it got flopped on with this character in a way that you know we don't care that Kitty was a princess during um the cross time paper. We don't keep coming back to that, so it is a weird thing to keep coming back to. 
And I mean, I think maybe it almost gets us back to that conversation about the ways that superhero comics can unproductively simplify things because it's like, well, yeah. we have a character who is religious. How are we going to tell that story? Oh, I know. Let's make them a priest rather mm -hmm. than talk about sort of a more complex relationship that he might have with his faith. And yeah. like, here's the thing, too. Like, if I'm going to like Kurt being a Catholic character, it's th for the same reasons that, you know, I like him being the character that he is more generally. It's that he's going to do things his way. And so he's has an opportunity with a character like Nightcrawler to like take the things that you know are incredibly problematic about how the catholic church has done things and he can be the character that does it different you know he is a reparative character in that way and shows us ways to have faith in ways that are positive that are sort of consistent with his character as a figure of acceptance and inclusion right and so it's just like, again, making him like a figure that's representative of that institution of the Catholic Church and not showing, you know, he could be, we don't get in any of it here in this comic, so we don't know. He could be joining that institution in an intentionally like reformist capacity, like maybe that's his motivation, but we've never had that story. All we know is that there was something that... What's well, a throwaway thing for an institution that, I am not Catholic, I'm not even religious, but I've done a lot of theological study you know, as a cultural theorist. And the Catholic Church has a very different and problematic in a different way, but, but a very different public facing image in 1991 than it does in 2020. And, which is not to say that it was perfect, it was not, very much not. And there was a lot hidden. And not just the Catholic Church as a public facing institution, it was thought of in a different way controversy-wise because of that public safety to where I don't think I, I think I don't think it's as complex to make that decision in 1991 as it is in 2021 but also still should have meant something playing with faith is complicated like you know trying to like to sort of you know toss that on a character is complicated which is why mostly superhero comics don't do it right like you don't have a lot of characters that are devoutly any religion because it's a complex thing to do and you're it, you're essentially accepting a lot of baggage in one bad in doing so. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't even be talking about this little reference to Priest Nightcrawler if it didn't come up again in later comics. So and I'm again, not sort of again, like bringing again, up. And again. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's not even that I have such a big issue with this comic. It's an alternate future. Who cares? But uh -huh. why does this element of this little alternate future get to be something that we're going to return back to so many times? No one remembers yeah. this comic book. No one remembers <laughs> this reference. And yet this thing is the thing yeah. that survives for whatever reason. Um. Anyway, let us wrap up there other than to jocelyn i'm so sorry for this long nightcrawler digression but <laughs> do you have any final thoughts about this issue that you would like to get off your chest any sort of moments from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to make sure that we talk about before we leave it in the rearview mirror yeah i have two things and they're both like relatively minor but they just kind of stuck out to me so again reading comics with color it was fun it was really great and i really just <laughs> love um I didn't expect there to be like such like I was really expecting because I don't read superhero comics have like a really kind of primary colors palette and I really really appreciated like the pink mauve purple and the way it's this really it's used I think on the page to really subtly link Amy and Rachel in a way that you like it I for me it took a little bit of close kind of uh, reading I didn't notice it at first and then I think one of the things that my my dissertation supervisor asked me in my defense which will haunt me for my whole rest of my life oh, no. but like in, in the best way and that it informed okay. so much of my work which is I work in queer theory a lot which is she asked me 
is like what does queer theory give to comics which is again like this really big like I don't have like a pat little answer to that um but it was such a cute little reminder when there's a little I can't at one point they like say that she's a mutant and and I was like oh right like that whole mutant superheroes thing that like I mostly never think about because I don't read superheroes comics is just like such a strong reason that queer theory belongs in comics Absolutely. And it will interest you to know that Rachel is a heavily queer-coded character in comics themselves, but also within the fan community. It's the blazer. I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) That is an absolutely perfect note to end on, so we will end there. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will sword will rise again so we will wrap up there unfortunately i love this combo i easily could have gone on for another hour not so much about priest nightcrawler which i'm tired of talking about but about the graphic medicine topics <laughs> certainly mm-hmm. so jocelyn thank you so very much for joining us and before we say goodbye or see you soon as this comic would suggest we should say we have got to remind everyone of your wonderful work so let's do that now if you would like people to find you online where can they find you and what fabulous work of yours should they be checking out Awesome. Absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Fandacam. Like, remember when we were watching those pandas to see if they were mating? Like the pandas. Oh my god. Yes! yes. <laughs> but it's an F instead of a P, so Fandacam. Um, I don't know. I mostly tweet about being a gender disaster, but some people might find that interesting. <laughs> Um, work of mine that I think people might enjoy checking out. So I, I want to plug, I, this is maybe a lot, but three pieces that I'm just really proud of. Of course. Um, so in the Journal of Girlhood Studies, I have a piece called Fantasies of the Good Life, Responding to Rape Culture in 13 Reasons Why. It's not comic studies, but it is visual studies and girlhood studies. I uh, have a piece in the edited collection, The Canadian Alternative, Cartoonist Comics and Graphic Novels, uh, edited by Dominant Grace and Eric Hoffman, which is, I think, the first collection of uh, essays on Canadian alternative comics and my piece is Making Space for Making Space, Jeff Lemire's Essex County and the Canadian Alternative. I think about masculinity and aging and kind of the, um, the the state of being unwell that sometimes comes along with aging. And then I have, recently... I, I have read that one, Jocelyn, and it's fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. I am like, it was one of the first things I ever had published and I'm so glad that it found a home in that collection because it's a wonderful a wonderful it is. collection. Yeah. yeah, and then finally, I have a piece in Inks uh, on Alison Beschel's Fun Home called Lateral Moves and Ghostly Gay Children Queer Spatial Metaphor in Alison Beschel's Fun Home. That sounds awesome. I have not read that one, but I am going to check that one out for sure. I love your discussions of sort of visualizing bodies and trauma and queerness in comics, so that's going to be a must read for me. Oh, thank you so much. So, thank you so much again, Jocelyn, for joining us. Yeah, it was really lovely. And this was such a fun conversation. I was first, like, no good reason nervous at first. And you folks are really, really lovely to, yeah, to do this with. Oh, well, the feeling is mutual.
Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 37, discussing Excalibur 36, X's and O's, featuring Silver Sable and the Outlaws, and our first returning guest, <laughs> who requested the issue, and I'm very curious to know why. We will leave you all in suspense along with us until then. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we do for some of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another hopeful conversation. Thank you, Jocelyn, for helping us shine a light on it all. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thank you.